Hey there, all you cool cats and kittens, and welcome back to another episode of Best in SaaS, where each week we take you behind the scenes for conversations with some of Silicon Valley's best and brightest operators and investors. Crack a beer, get comfortable, and join us on our quest to find the patterns and playbooks that accelerate the sprint to 10 million of that good stuff, that repeatable stuff, that stuff we call ARR. Today's episode is brought to you by No Boring Design. Wow, what a name. No, we know this team well. We've brought them in to help with a number of engagements when design becomes a bottleneck for shipping campaigns quickly. Uh, Also when design is boring, right? A lot of B2B status quo becomes boring and it doesn't have to be. So we bring this team in, they level up the quality design and they remove design as a bottleneck to ship campaigns, content, product marketing assets, you name it, if it needs a design and you're hung up on it, this team can help. Um, Somehow they managed to do this. I think their price point starting out as 2,500 a month, uh, obviously goes up from there, but what a great resource. We've seen them firsthand do great work with Dropbox, Yelp, a number of our big clients they've been a part of, so. Check them out, noboringdesign.com, noboringdesign.com. Super excited. Heaton, thank you for joining us on the show today. For those of you who don't know him, most of you probably do. Um, Heaton started Crazy Egg almost 15 years ago, maybe more than 15 years ago now. Um, Kiss Metrics, and now is working on a product called FYI. Super excited to have him on the show. He's an advisor, investor in more companies than I can count. Keaton, welcome to the show. I can't count them anymore either. Thanks for having me. I'm just an angel investor, so no big deal. Um, yeah, <laughs> amazing. So, uh, as you know, this this show is all about you know we're trying to obsess over that first sprint from when a company finds their initial product market fit around a million in ARR, and the, now they're trying to scale it up to that first big milestone of 10 million ARR and even beyond. Um, your ability to pattern match at this point based on all of that experience that you have and the, the amount of time you've been in industry is pretty unprecedented. I'm curious, um, when was the first time, as you were working on all of these projects yourself, when was the first time you realized you were starting to take advantage of some of that experience and pattern matching for your own projects? I'm just a lifelong learner. And I, I just literally like to learn from anything and everything I possibly can get my hands on, whether it's um, books, uh, podcasts, audiobooks, um, other people. Uh, and I also have a, a, a hobby that <clears throat> is really just thinking about other people's businesses. Uh, so other businesses, basically, whether it's large, small um, or whatever. And so it, it just to me, it was just more of an extension of what I was already doing. And being able to also be helpful and watch uh, lots of different experiments happen, whether it's product marketing growth, et cetera, um, across many different companies is obviously super valuable. But really, for me, it's just another set of inputs uh, and, and another set of um, learnings that come from those. That, that's kind of the way I, I think about it. Now that I'm thinking about it, you were the, f- you were the person who told me, uh, actually, the way that you framed it, you were like, dude, what are you doing you should not be listening to audiobooks at regular playback. It's all about that 2x life. And uh, you got me back into reading, but well, air quotes, reading books uh, because of that. Because <laughs> yeah. otherwise, I was too ADD. I just could go off topic and start daydreaming. But 2x really keeps you focused. 
It really does. And, and even you can even go up to 3x if you're willing to spend five or 10 minutes to get accustomed to it. Um, it's actually really possible. So yeah, I think, I think I was definitely early on that trend from what I can tell. And now even YouTube has a 2x feature and stuff like that for the longest time they didn't. So I'd have to use these like browser extensions and stuff. So that's, that's like a, a great life hack or learning hack. Um, I'd love to deep dive now into maybe even let's just start with crazy. I go start at the beginning, looking back on your experience starting and growing that business. Um, are there any things that now are informing the way that you think about growing, uh, FYI? Yeah, I'm going to give my lessons learned across the board from each of these oriented around growth, specifically around getting from like, you know, six to really low seven figures to like eight figures in revenue. Um, and l- let's see where it goes. So with Crazy Egg, we launched in 2005 uh, or actually started in 2005. We might have officially launched it publicly in 2006. So it's about 15 years um, ago. And we that business still exists at crazyegg.com. And um, we early on had a free plan. We were essentially one of three you could say first to market at scale with the idea that um, analytics could be much more than just numbers. And so what we built was a way for you to look at your website, each page on your website in this like visual representation that was kind of like a heat map and not kind of, it was a heat map. That's what we called it. Uh, we, we really popularized the term. Um, and even today, like I, I, I talked to our, you know, one person in sales at the company, I talked to many folks around and like, if you want like the best tool for heat maps, we are the best tool for heat maps. I can say that because we spent 15 years getting that tech to be where it is today. And nobody else has spent that kind of time because the companies that existed uh, at that time no longer exist right now or are moved on to other types of things. We still are at the core uh, as of right now, a heat map tool. Now, what that business taught me about growth and scale and those things is that is basically the power of brand. So one crazy egg is kind of a, a name where like you don't ex- you don't know what you're going to expect when you hear it or when you go to it. So someone has to tell you what is this thing. We came out at a time when when this product was what I call new, different, and right. And so the the way I think about it is if you're going to grow a business, you have to figure out what's new, different, and right about it. Even if it's a copycat of something else, new, different, and right is what people want to buy. Um, and it's, it, it really gets to the crux of like when people say build something people want or now in these days with these, this environment, build something people need. It has to be new, different and right for them to really be pulled towards it. There's one other example of this, which is literally it can be cheaper than anything else out there, um, any alternative. And then you might be going into a race to the bottom, but there is value in building the cheapest thing possible. Examples of that are like Zoho. Um, even fresh, fresh works um, now, which started out as a fresh desk. Um, a lot of these products that can build cheaper because, you know, those two companies are located in India are able to have that value problem. While many folks who are not located in places where engineering talent is, is cheaper uh, or more affordable, let's say, if you want to call it that, where they can lower their costs, like you end up with this sort of uh, value prop and sale. And it depends on the market. But the big thing from that one that I took away is like, if you can build a brand and really like 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 build something that's right for the market, it's different, uh, it's new, it feels fresh and new, people will talk about it. That to me is the basis of anything that's, that's that blows up on its own. 
without a lot of initial like efforts around marketing and sales and growth and things like that. And that really hits to the point why people say you need product market fit first, whatever that means. You basically need a product people want to tell everyone they know about, right? Or everyone that's relevant that they know about, um, you know, that they know about this product and it exists and it's like so awesome. And that worked really well for us with building something new, different and right in the analytics market with Crazy Egg. Then my my next company that we ended up, uh, Crazy Egg self-funded, we ended up raising money for Kissmetrics and kind of spun it out of Crazy Egg because we were building a second product. Um, we were really early on <clears throat> this idea that you can build a lot of traffic and do demand generation via blogging. Um, we were definitely post HubSpot there. They were about, I think, 06. We, were, uh, we started out in 2008 with Kissmetrics. And um, what we learned there and what I learned and what I took away is that you can build a strong presence without actually creating a lot of your own content and by having people guest post content um, and just having a strict editorial set of guidelines. So the content is very uh, compelling. So we ended up hitting, uh, I think, one to two million uh, page views a month, somewhere in that range, uh, just from uh, Google search um, and with uh, Kissmetrics before the company was kind of bought and sold one or two times, I don't remember. Um, and and so what I learned there is the ability to build a brand off of creating brand affinity to your content. We used to blog about everything marketing when there weren't as many um, really in-depth pieces about marketing out there on like how to do something or the latest and greatest with Google Analytics and how to like use use it to the like, you know, extent that like you don't need any other analytics tool, things like that. So we were blogging a lot about uh, things that marketers really cared about because marketers were the ones buying analytics tools and Kissmetrics was an analytics tool. There's a bunch of different reasons why it was new, different and right. Uh, the high level reason was we actually tied the data to your customers so you could see what your customers were doing, which didn't exist in any analytics tool before us. Um, in a very easy, quick way. Uh, and it did exist in the high-end enterprise tools, but and it was very hard to implement, but it didn't exist in sort of the more lower-end SMB startup-focused tools. And so really learn the benefit of being able to create a lot of content without actually having to write it yourself um, and the power of blogging for getting you know search traffic. I'd love to jump into that for a second because it seems that there's always, there are always these, these waves in marketing and growth, um, like if we think of inbound and, and content production, starting perhaps with HubSpot, at least in mass, and then um, Kissmetrics really helping pioneer that, that kind of wave. And then all of a sudden there are these people who pile on and they're like, shit, we need to create our brand, we need to create our, our content marketing strategy and, and end up producing, they go through the motions, they produce content, but not for the right reasons, or they end up doing it for the sake of doing it because they think they're supposed to. And it doesn't end up fulfilling that, that purpose that you were describing, like the need to create a brand to break out. And I'm curious if you have any insights as to what separates the companies who do it well and do it right and it's beneficial and helps them grow versus the companies who see those companies and go, oh, we need to do that too, but totally miss the mark. Intentionality. So it has a lot to do with your intention <clears throat> with the content and your ability to create really valuable, high quality content that people love. And it's not it's not like something that's super easy to do. So I wouldn't say, oh, you know, 
go out and decide, hey, we're going to create a content engine or create a bunch of content and then learn how to do that really well. And it's going to happen in a month uh, if you don't know how to do it. Even if you hire someone, it's not necessarily what's going to happen. And a lot of this, ironically, the best content comes from a really deep understanding of your audience, your customer you're going after, the market and the opportunity. And you're mapping the strategy to that. So where people fail is they're not very strategic about it. And they're just super hyper tactical, looking at what others have done, trying to write better content than them, but not really hitting the mark. So it's like what a lot of people will tell you about this, which is basically that the key to great content is actually just basically being able to think through the journey that a potential customer goes through to make decisions, whether it's decisions around buying your product or decisions around the sort of landscape of your product. And what I mean by that is like if you're building a project management tool, you should know who the customer is and the landscape of that product would be all the different things and the tools that they use in order to get um, projects to completion. Uh, And it might not just be a project management tool, but they might be using a document app or they might be using Slack and other things like that. And so this deep understanding is where people miss out on. So I would... I typically would suggest that if you're going to start a content marketing strategy or evaluate one, evaluate it based on whether you think it's attracting the type of people you want it to attract. And if you don't have an answer to that, then you want to figure out what the answer is to that. And I don't mean to say that like all, all you're trying to do with your content is attract your buyer. What I'm saying is you want to find a way to attract the people who really care about the category, the market. Um, and there are always like different types of content that you can write that can help you do that. So it's, it's, it's one of those things where like, it's almost like turned into a checkbox strategy, which is we need a blog. We need to be blogging. Actually, no, maybe you don't, maybe there's a better strategy for you. Maybe you have scale, um, and you have other channels that are worth pursuing that are more product oriented, uh, not necessarily as much marketing oriented, channels. And that might be better for you depending on the type of business and product you have. I see so many companies like have so much product opportunity when it comes to their marketing that they just don't utilize it because usually it requires like cross-functional coordination. Uh, So that's one of the biggest problems I see. And so then they just go, oh, let's do a blog because marketing can fully control that uh, without much, much if any input from other parts of the business. But then what can happen is like you still end up with a cross-functional situation because sometimes you need more content you need the internal team to help you write it you need the internal team to help you promote it internal team has opinions on what should be said for the brand and and all that stuff so like things get kind of complicated super fast actually especially as you're trying to scale um kind of your efforts so like blogging is like a three six nine twelve month effort before you really start seeing the fruits of that labor and one of the things that people don't realize about blogging specifically and content marketing is that it's really about not writing content that pops off one time. It's really about finding the types of content that you think is so so evergreen that um, it'll get ranked in Google or it'll get shared in channels continuously that are going to enable you to basically um, have continuous traffic from that content. The worst type of content is the ones that are like one hit wonders. And there's most of the content, if it's like when it does work, are one hit wonders, not like you're consistent, this is going to get you traffic, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of visitors every month, uh, you know, literally on a consistent basis. So it's, it's almost like you want to find the things that are 
both repeatable on your end to do, but also repeatable in terms of the amount of traffic you can get from them. Perfect. That was uh, that was exactly what I was looking for with that deep dive. So let's get you back on track to this is Kissmetrics. You guys were getting tons of page views. You were focusing on building the right content. Where'd you go from there? Yeah, we collected a lot of email addresses. We ended up doing a bunch of webinars up to like one one a week, and we were using that for our demand generation and using that to basically get people to convert and buy the product and help them see kind of the light at the end of the tunnel around the product. And that was really fruitful at the time. I think one thing that I would mention is that like whatever market you're in, you have to really analyze the market opportunity for the different sort of product uh, initiatives you have. And in the same way, you need to do the same with marketing. So oftentimes I just see a playbook and the playbook is repeated. Typically that, that playbook doesn't get tweaked enough early on. And so I'm not against playbooks at all. What I'm more against is like if that playbook doesn't include context. And so what we learned is that uh, there were marketers, a lot of marketers, most marketers were hungry for deep 1,500, 2,500, 3,000 word posts that would deep dive into a topic and help them understand it in one sitting. And so we started creating content like that. And that was like back in 2008 to like 2012. Um, Now that strategy in marketing is what everyone's using. So you need to find those early, early things that you see patterns of, but aren't like, haven't become commoditized or haven't become like ubiquitous and everyone's not doing it. Otherwise, you know, it's not that it won't work. It's just that it won't have as much um, attention and longevity as you might think, because it's a mature strategy. So these days, you know, especially with FYI, which I can kind of go into how I've taken some of those lessons, but the big one I've taken is when I look at channels, I look at market, I look at the equivalent of user stories, personas, jobs to be done, whatever your flavor is of understanding your customer. Um, We do a lot of competitive research. We do it so that we can understand what customers are experiencing and what they think. We don't do it to see what features a competitor has. And so we do a lot of sentiment analysis around like customer reviews, um, like on all the different like g2.com and all the different review sites, including like the app stores, the mobile ones, et cetera, Chrome extensions, and really analyze what people are saying in the reviews about different products and use that to help us really figure out, well, how do we position the product? Because one part of marketing is positioning. And a lot of that has to do with this context about your market and the opportunity and then mapping whatever channels and strategies you use to go after it. So I can't stress this enough, but like when you're scaling and you're going from seven figures to eight figures and beyond, you have to think about, what are the channels that are mature and what are the channels that are immature in our market, not necessarily in the world? So Snapchat is immature for a lot of different opportunities, but it's pretty mature for a few of them. And really being able to understand the difference there can be really helpful to see if you have an opportunity in that channel that's nascent or if it's a mature opportunity. And the way you think about scaling channels and diversification around content, I think, and not just content, but marketing. I think, I think all content is marketing, all marketing is content. So that's why I keep interchanging them sometimes. But like overall, one thing that I would say is that the number of channels you used in most cases increases double, triple, uh, as you go from seven to eight. And that means you need to expand your horizons on like what channels are viable in your market that your customers are basically hanging out at and that you can go after them with. And I think like the more I think about some of these opportunities today and I think about our business at FYI, I mean, we've got a blog, we write a ton of content, we've got a bunch of search traffic, we're going after a bunch of you know specific terms that we really think are aligned with 
the intent of our audience. And we're creating sort of a, a wide net, so to speak, because the product is very horizontal. Um, it, it, you know, you find your documents in three clicks or less. That's our value proposition, whether it's personally or with your team um, or individually in a company. Uh, and then it, it sort of spreads inside the company. That's the, that's a play. That's how we think about it. And the things we have to do there, because if you need to find all your documents in three clicks or less, is we connect to all these different document apps. So for us, our strategies are really identifying what are mature and immature strategies. For example, in our space of productivity, having a referral program, like a double, uh, double referral program, very, very similar to like Dropbox, basically, who basically popularized the concept, that's a very tried and true strategy. We don't have that with our product today, but it is one we might deploy later on. It's one we'll deploy like maybe a year from now, 18 months from now, maybe a little bit longer, maybe a little bit closer to now. Another one is like related to that is like this idea of giving away credits as people are doing things in the product, which Airtable and Notion have done in the productivity space um, and, and really thinking about how that works. Slack actually did it as well. So there's a number of these strategies that we've really thought of that are either mature or immature. So in some markets, that strategy of giving away credits and double referral programs, they're not mature. It's not a strategy most people are doing. So it's probably a bigger opportunity to release that in that market because customers are just not used to it. Well, in our market, I wouldn't say it's table stakes, but it's become a popular strategy. And, and the reason it's popular is it probably works, but it doesn't work as well as when Dropbox did it. So this is something to really think about when you think about channels and when you think about like which ones to go after is really thinking through the historical context in your market and because that, those are the things your customers have been experiencing. And that customer sort of um, sentiment around some of those types of features and ideas and things like that is, is really, really core to identifying what, what to do and how to scale. I love this idea that you're sitting back and you're, you're looking at all the historical channels or levers that you can pull for FYI right now. And, and we'll stick with the example that you gave of, you know, the, the double opt-in or the double referral, um, the strategy that Dropbox played and kind of popularized back in the day as compared to um, the points or credits that uh, Slack and Airtable and Notion have, have been taking advantage of. So you personally, when you're, when you're thinking through all of these different options that you could roll with, how do you decide? Like, how do you, how do you go about, I know you said some of them are, you know, tried and true and some of them are newer but, but there's pros and cons to each of those, right? So like, how do you personally, what's the rubric or, or, or method that you walk yourself through to make that decision? Yeah, we evaluate um, channels based on criteria. And um, the criteria is, is basically essentially based on um, our ability to execute and our ease of execution, which is what I don't see enough. Uh, sometimes you call it difficulty. So you're basically taking all these channels reviewing them and, and, and figuring out how much you, however much you can. Are they mature? Are they immature? Um, uh, you know, what's the context? So we, we write literally briefs on every channel uh, that we, we kind of entertain. And then we put kind of each one into a spreadsheet and really figure out how to score them. And so like this ease of execution is kind of a, a big idea for us, which is how easy will it be to, for us to execute on that channel? Uh, then it's like just, uh, you know, equivalent uh, to that for us is basically a score on like, uh, basically it's like time to learning. And so how fast can we learn about that channel? For example, 
uh, and this goes to the next point, but uh, paid channels, you can learn pretty fast, like in terms of learn about how viable they are for you, um, not just from an analysis and all that. Let's say the analysis pans out and there's like keywords you can target or audiences you can target on Facebook or whatever. Um, you, you, you would then try to try to basically figure out what the, the, the next criteria is basically what the cost is. So it's basically ease of execution, speed to speed to getting the learnings of whether the channel is viable or not for you. So costs and stuff like that. And then the last one would be hypothetical costs. Like is the cost low, medium or high? Uh, like, for example, paid acquisition tends to be medium to high, not low in most cases. But then you, you look at content and you might be like, actually, content's more medium. It's not low. Uh, unless the founders and folks like that are doing writing it. That being said, there's a trade-off to a founder writing content uh, compared to doing other things. And you just got to weigh that trade-off off. For us, like that trade-off's worth it. And we, we write uh, our content and it, it works for us. And so I think, I think the thing folks don't do is figure out the criteria for each channel, score it on some kind of scoring, and then use that to help prioritize which experiments they run on which channels. I like that as a uh, as just a methodology framing for for some founders or operators who are trying to figure out the best way to approach making these decisions. So as we wrap up, I, I always love to ask this question, which is, you know, f- and especially for you, it's actually different. For for people have a list, maybe maybe formally or informally in their head of like the people that they look up to, the people that they draw inspiration from as their working towards their own professional goals. And I'd imagine for many people, you are on that list. Um, so this is fun to get to ask you this question. But I'm curious, who are some of those people for you? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I always have the attitude that I can learn from anyone. And it doesn't matter who they are and what they've done in their lives. There's always something interesting and a learning there for me. Uh, I'm also like hypercritical uh, when I, when I think about others and, and hopefully when I think about myself and what I'm doing, uh, and hypercritical in the sense of like wanting to know where, where the gaps are, where the holes are. So I think it's tough for me to give you a, a list of people or even single out a single person who like, I would say I get inspired by or look up to. Um, and, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's really, it's really a good question. And that for me, honestly, that question changes so regularly, it, 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 the answer to it, I guess that like, I would have to say that like, I tend to look up to almost anybody and everybody for something or another. Um, and I can give lots of different examples and, you know, sometimes people have opinions about those people and things like that. But at the end of the day, I think like everybody has something to teach us. Uh, no matter who they are. And um, I kind of, I kind of would just say that like, if you, if you ask me today, who are some of the most sort of interesting people uh, for me, it's about who's interesting for what. Uh, And so I'll give some examples. So I look at Joel who started buffer or Nathan who started convert kit when I really want to think about in in a way like uh, uh, very opinionated about what they're doing. And also um, able to uh, scale a business that's either self-funded or just done in their own way. Like Buffer is not technically self-funded, but it was built in their own way and they have their own opinion. Now they're doing about, um, you know, $20 million, uh, $22 million in revenue per year. And I was early involved in the company uh, as an advisor and then I became an investor later. And like, it's, it's an awesome company. Um, there's a there's a guy on Twitter. Uh, his uh, Twitter handle is M 
Kobach, uh, Kobach or Kobach. So it's M-K-O-B-A-C-H. He is really great on social media, especially Twitter. And his ideas are very uh, timely and even in some ways forward thinking when it comes to social media, specifically Twitter and advice on like how to do it. In fact, like there, there are a lot of tweets that like, that he writes where I'm like, you know, either I wish I said it or he said he's saying it better than I have, or I've thought about it, you know, or better than I could and, or I've thought about it for years. And so if I want to be inspired about how to like think about social media, uh, Matthew Kobach is who I'd look at on Twitter. Um, and, and you know, the list kind of goes on. Like, for example, if I really want to push on like, uh, community, and customer community and how to sort of build affinity with customers. I really think about Eric Ewan uh, from uh, uh, Zoom. Um, and, and that's because he has been on top of any of the situations and problems, even the most critical of folks uh, uh, and just like literally like goes and responds and does his best. It's absolute best. And you know, he's genuine and means it. Uh, and then I got one last one, which is, uh, the folks at Basecamp, uh, I still like to call it 37 Signals because that's what their initial business was, but the folks at Basecamp. So this is Jason Fried and uh, DHH, uh, David. And um, the reason I look up to them right now in some ways is because I think that they have a very um, specific approach to marketing that I only more recently figured out. And, and they've always had this approach. So when they first started Basecamp, it felt like they were against Gantt charts and really heavy project management tools. And they built project management for everyone. And they had an enemy. Now email is their en- Not enemy, but email providers that do all kinds of weird stuff are their enemy. And weird stuff according to them that you know have tracking pixels in the emails. Well, that's what almost every email provider has. Um, and things like that. Uh, and they, they're building this product called Hey that has some delays right now because of coronavirus and stuff. But like, it's it's interesting. They they create you know. And then now anyone who's not cool with remote work is an enemy. So it's almost like they're using this tried and true strategy, and they've always used it. And it just clicked for me of what they're doing as I observe them. And then I wonder why are they so angry, et cetera? Because I really do wonder why they're so angry, specifically DHH. Although I get it. And I respect his anger at this point because it causes, hopefully it causes so much change that it's worth it for him. But I, I don't know. But at the end of the day, they, they, they have this approach of typical marketing approach, a little bit old school, but it's basically equivalent of marketing warfare. They really, it feels like they think about marketing as warfare. It feels like they pick an enemy and go after that enemy. And they feel like they're picking the right enemy. And you can see it in the tweets. You can see it in the copy. You can see it in the language. There's always this undertone of, we are your savior from that enemy. But let me tell you about that enemy and how we're going to save you. And that's kind of like where I'm at with um, my sort of 20 years of observing them, maybe a little bit more, 21 or so, uh, and being like, oh, wow, who are these people? What are they doing? Why do they do it like this? And then I, it just dawned on me. It's pretty simple. They pick an enemy and they know how to do that. And then they go after that enemy and they use that to get attention and do their marketing. Picking an enemy, you've you've cracked the, the thirty-seven signals code. Fifteen years later, <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. I think so, um, but it really dawned on me recently because, like, they've been very aggressive about it in more than one area recently, and so it became very clear that that's their strategy to me. 
because they've been quiet for a long time about a lot of things. And then all of a sudden you see them going after it. And then I thought about it. I'm like, wait, this is the pattern the whole time I've been observing them and been privy to their work. Well, Heaton, this has been fantastic. I think you've given us all a lot to think about. And, and certainly um, for all of the founders out there and, and operators, you know, looking back uh, at everything that you've done and the decisions you've made, and more importantly, how you've made them, um, I think it's, it's great material for everybody to, uh, to take a, a trick out of your book and, and see how they can provide the right context, as you said, for their own business. So thank you so much for taking the time. This has been really fun. Thanks for having me.